We are starting today, we, today we are going to look at one of my favorite stories, one of, well, just about everybody's favorite stories, the story of David and Goliath. This story is iconic. If you ever watch a sporting event or an, an election or uh, a military engagement, any kind of story about one side that's bigger and stronger than the other, people describe it as a David and Goliath situation. Even people who've never read the Bible, people who don't know anything about Christianity, never been to church, they understand the basic framework of this story. And so my challenge today, our challenge today is to read this and to see this story through new eyes. Because what I think is what I shared with you last week, we make a mistake when we read the stories of Scripture, not just the story of David, but the stories of Scripture as moral examples for us to follow. It's not always a terrible idea, but there are, there's a problem with that theory, that way of reading the Bible. Number one, the people in Scripture, aside from Jesus, don't always act morally. They make some terrible decisions, and, and you're going to see that in David's life as we go on. But secondly, and I think equally important, you can't just do the math and say, because David did these things, here's how it ended up for him. So if I just follow his example and behave the way he did, make the kind of decisions he made, it will turn out for me that way too. So for instance, uh, in the story of David and Goliath, we know, I'm sorry, I'm about to spoil the whole story. If you've never heard it before, David wins, okay? So David conquers this giant. And so we say, okay, all I have to do when I face some obstacle that is bigger and more fearsome than I, all I have to do is do what David did. I just have to believe that I'm going to win and God will give me the power to accomplish it. And so we, we can make terrible mistakes with that logic. For instance, if your, your worst fear is death and you get sick and you say to yourself, well, just like David, I am calling on the power of God to defeat this disease. I will survive. I will conquer. This will not defeat me. I will win. Well, what if that's not God's plan? What if it's God's time to take you home to be with him, which is the best thing that will ever happen to you? Well, in the midst of your death, your loved ones, their faith will be crushed because they've been told by you that you're going to win. Or what if you don't die, but your faith, your, your, your health is debilitated and you live with a constant sense of, of illness for a long time? Your faith will be crushed because you thought, well, I thought if I believe in God with enough diligence, enough fervency, then he's going to give me healing. Second example, let's say my biggest fear is rejection. And I experience struggles in an important relationship. And those should be times that humble me. I should be caused to sit back and say, okay, Jeff, what are you doing that is driving Carrie away from you? Or what are you doing that is causing Will or, or Kaylee to resent you? Or what are you doing that is causing one of your friends to feel betrayed by you? But instead, if I follow the example of David, then I double down on all my behaviors and I say, uh, you know, by the power of God, you will not reject me. I will not let it happen. You're going to be my... And, and what happens when we become controlling like that? is the exact opposite of what we want. That's not love. And so our fear drives us to love our loved ones less. Third example, let's say that my big uh, fear is failure. And so I, I set up in my mind the example of what I think success looks like, whether it's reaching the top of an industry or being ahead of my class or accomplishing this or, or gaining this kind of income. And so I say, okay, I'm, by, by God's power, I'm going to accomplish that. I, if you listen to a lot of popular preaching today, that's what you get from the messages. If you have enough faith, if you're faithful enough to God, he's going to give you all these things. But what if you don't accomplish those things? Maybe God's plan for you is not to be the CEO. 
Maybe God's plan for you is not to live in the nice, exclusive neighborhood. What are you going to do with that after you've already made these promises to yourself by the power of God? What if, what if on the way to that, what if you actually do accomplish everything you hope, but in the process of getting there, you have to compromise ethically and morally, or in order to get there, you have to spend less time with your loved ones. You have to, you have to uh, basically throw away some important relationships because of the work it takes to accomplish that. You see what fear does to us, and we think it's faith. I'll give you a fourth example. A lot of us fear change. Change is one of the scariest things in life. And I, I had a friend several years ago in another church, and, and she's a little bit older than me, and she was talking about how when she grew up, the, the, the culture, the America she grew up in, there was a lot more respect for certain institutions, for the church, for the military, for the government. There was more of a sense of common consensus about moral issues. And she said, and, and I've lived long enough to see things change in terrible ways, and, and I agreed with her. I, you know, I, things are changing very fast, and I don't like all the things that are changing the way they are. And she said, what, what scares me is my grandchildren are growing up in a world where things are changing so fast, I don't know what they're going to have to encounter. I want them to have a world like the one I grew up in. And I said, I understand, and I, I, I know why you want that, and I think that's, that's a fine motive, but you have to understand that you know, we are where we are and God can use us in whatever realm we're in. I said, you know, the, the first Christians lived in a world that was much more godless than this and look what God did through them. So instead of being afraid of our culture, why not, why not just get excited about what God can do? Um, but she disagreed with me. She said, I, no, I, I want them to have what I had. And there's a lot of people, especially Christians who feel that way and that fear drives them to say, we need to fight back against the forces that are taking our culture in directions we don't want it to go. We, we have to, that is our top priority to win this war for our culture. And so for 40 or 50 years, Christians have been engaged in that. And one of the things that's done is it's taken our focus away from the central command of Scripture, which is love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So we don't love our neighbor, we see him as the enemy because... He's changing things because he's our opponent in this war we're fighting. We're, we're like David. We're calling on God's power to give us back our culture. And well, let's be honest. Have we won that war? No. I mean, with all our efforts, many of them with the best of intentions, things have changed in ways we didn't want them to anyway. And in the meantime, you can look at the numbers. They bear this out. We're reaching fewer and fewer people every year with the gospel. So that's what fear does to us. We can't, we can't just say, okay, I just need to follow the blueprint of David and just believe and call on God and he's going to give me victory in whatever I'm afraid of. That's not the way it works. So what do we do with this story? Well, I think in order to get there, you have to put yourself in the sandals of someone who was there. So imagine you are standing 3,000 years ago on the slope of the Valley of Ella right there between Israel and the land of the Philistines. And across that valley, you see the Philistine army gathered in all their armor and their feathered headdresses. And, and you're standing there knowing that you're not a warrior. You're a farmer. Every day you spend on the front lines of this war is a day you can't be home providing for your family. Your, your wife and your children are scratching out a living as best they can with you gone. But in the meantime, you're stuck there. You're there defending Israel. And, and you're holding your sword, looking across that valley at the opponent on the other side. And you're hoping the guy next to you doesn't notice how bad your hands are shaking. And the truth is, a, a few months ago, you wouldn't have been nearly as afraid. 
Because you were one of those men who went down with the other men of Israel and stood before Samuel the prophet and said, listen, Samuel, you've been leading us for years, and we know that you've always told us we don't need a king, we just need to trust in God, we just need to follow his covenant, and he'll protect us from all our foes, and he'll provide for all our needs. But, you know, the truth is we're tired of believing in someone we can't see. We want to be like other nations. They have a king who sits up on a throne and and organizes everything. We want something we can see. And so Samuel gives in and he anoints a king for Israel, a man named Saul, the son of Kish uh, of the tribe of Benjamin. And the first time you see him, you think, oh yeah, now that's a guy I can follow because he's a head and shoulders taller than anybody else you know. And he just looks big and fit and strong and fierce. And, And sure enough, the first few times he leads his country in battle, you guys win and you conquer the Philistines, and and you're experiencing the kind of victory you've never experienced, and you're walking around with your chest full of air and, and, and your head held high, and for the first time in your life, there's not Philistine soldiers milling around your village and taking whatever they want. They've, they've tucked tail and run, but then something happens. See, something went, something went snap inside Saul's head because he abandoned the Lord. And the Lord said, you go your own way. You're, okay, if you want to go that way, you're on your own. And, and, and Saul's mind has snapped. And although he's still big and strong looking, he's hollow chested. And you can just look in his eyes and see his heart is not there. And so there you stand on that ridge next to your, next to your uh, friends in arms. And you're looking across that valley. And you're thinking, if those guys get up that slope and past us, then our country's done. And right as you're thinking these thoughts, you see something that scares you more than anything you've ever seen in your life. This guy comes walking through the Philistine lines, and he is the biggest single living creature you have ever seen. You know, scholars tell us that in those days, uh, the average male grew to be about 5'1 or 5'2, which sounds like a great place to live. Um, You know, I, I, I could be the post on the NBA team in Bethlehem, you know, the Bethlehem dreidels or whatever, but... um, so, so you picture people that size, and here comes a guy who's nearly 10 feet tall. You know, the, the Philistines wore helmets with feathers on top, and so with the feathers and all, this was over 10 feet tall. And he's, he's wearing 125 pounds worth of armor. The Bible's very specific about this. That's more than you weigh. If you're, uh, you're 3,000 years ago in Israel, he, he's got in one hand this long curved sword and the other uh, a, a spear that's the size of a fence post and a javelin across his back for long range archery, for long range sniping. You know he's strong enough. He could heave that thing and pick off one of you anytime he wants. And he comes out and he begins to, to, to yell in this loud, deep, guttural voice that just chills your soul He begins to challenge the Israelite army. Send your best man. Send him across this valley. I will meet you in the middle and we will fight. He's challenging you to single warrior combat. It's an ancient tradition. And it's pretty obvious why the Philistines are doing this. They've lost the last couple of times you two armies fought. And so the idea is, yeah, you may be able to beat us in a a pitched battle, but one-on-one, nobody you have can face our Goliath. And the odds are simple. If he wins, you serve the Philistines. If, if, if your guy somehow wins, then they serve you. And you know that Saul is the one who should accept this challenge. He's the biggest. He's the strongest. It's his job, but he won't. 
And so instead, he begins to offer some inducements. He says, listen, I want you to know, I want you to know that if you fight this giant and you win, you get to marry my daughter. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us what Saul's daughter looks like because that's not the key point. The key point is being the king's son-in-law is a sweet gig because your family is exempt from taxes, because you are enriched in many ways, because you have access to the throne, you have power on your side. And so you can, you can see every day as you walk out to, to line up for battle once again, and, the, and the, that giant walks forward and issues his same challenge every morning. You can hear guys next to you saying, hey, do you want to do this? I mean, being the king's son-in-law, that's a pretty good, pretty good job. Don't you want to try? Well, I don't know, but I think you'd make a good son-in-law to the king. I, I'm, I'm really not qualified, but how about you? And nobody's budging. Nobody's moving even a single inch. And this goes on every single morning for 40 days. And every day you're out there is another day that your family back home is having to scrounge for food and struggle to stay alive. And you know that if this lasts much longer, guys are going to start to desert. And you're going to be one of them. And you don't know this, but there's a kid in the front lines that day, a kid named David. Because you see, what's happened was the, the supplies that the Israelite army has brought have run out. And so families back home are having to send food to the front lines to their loved ones. And so David has come bringing food for his three older brothers, Eliab and Shammah, um, and the third one whose name I can't remember. Oh, Abinadab, there you go. So David has come bringing food for his three older brothers, and he overhears this challenge. The giant comes out and he starts to speak, and David says, in the hearing of everybody, well, Who's going to fight him? I mean, this guy's over there. Y'all heard him, right? He's defying the armies of the living God. He is blaspheming our God. It's our job to make him shut up. So who's going to do it? And Eliab, David's oldest brother, overhears him. And he speaks. And we, we have his words in verse 26 of chapter 17. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You know, nothing makes a coward angrier than witnessing true courage. And Eliab, I'm sure, is still smarting because it wasn't so long ago Samuel came to Bethlehem where he lived and anointed his runt brother David as the next king instead of him. And he can't tell anybody about that. That's a big secret. But he can make David look foolish in front of his fellow soldiers. And so that's exactly what he does. But someone else hears about David's words. Word gets back to Saul. Saul, who is in his tent with his head in his hands trying to find a way out of this mess. And someone comes in and says, hey, there's a man on the front lines who says he's willing to fight. We'll summon him immediately, says King Saul. And you have to picture the face of Saul when he sees this smooth-cheeked shepherd boy come in. By the way, David, we, we picture often a little boy. That's probably not the case. David, um, we know that he was 30 when he became king. So at this time, he's probably a teenager. So 15, 16, 17 years old. You couldn't, be, you couldn't fight in the army of Israel if you were 20, so he was at least younger than that. That's all we know for sure. So here comes David standing before Saul, and Saul is disheartened to see this is no warrior. This is a shepherd boy. 
But David has a sales pitch. Listen to what David says in verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. See, David, like we said last week, his time in the shepherd field this, this moment, this, this period that he would not have chosen for himself, and yet it has equipped him in a singular way for this moment. He's used to danger. He's used to thinking for himself. He's used to having to be courageous. Now for Saul, you have to ask yourself, what is he thinking? This is a huge gamble. You're placing the fate of a nation on the narrow shoulders of a little shepherd guy who's not even a warrior, who's never fought another human being. And... and for Saul, you have to think it's his way of basically absolving himself of responsibility. I mean, this is the point to which Saul had fallen in his mental state. He was probably thinking to himself, well, you know, I'm sure the kid's going to lose, but at least it won't, me be, won't be me losing. At least people won't hold me responsible because this kid said God sent him, and who was I to argue? And after all, we're not going to die. He'll die. We won't die and, and we'll be slaves. Slavery isn't great, but it's better than death. Now, David, I want you to think about David for a moment. What is David thinking? Because the next thing that happens is Saul says, if you're going to go, take my armor, take my weapons. I've got the best technology in all of Israel. You're going to want to have the best against this guy. David tries it briefly and says, no, this is not for me. He drops it. He takes his staff. He goes to the, to the brook and he finds five smooth stones. Now, I've always pictured these little disc-like rocks, the kind that I used to skip across my grandpa's stock tank. But uh, archaeologists tell us, because they found caches of uh, sling stones in, in specific places, and they've told us that actually if you were a slinger in those days, you favored rocks that were the size of tennis balls. So big rocks. And they had to be smooth because you want them to fly straight. You don't need any spitballs curving. You want it to go straight where you aim. David goes out against a, a, a warrior... 10 feet tall with the best technology of his time. Not only does he have all the stuff I've described, he's got a shield bearer standing in front of him in case you want to throw any projectiles at him, including rocks, including arrows, that shield bearer will block it all. So he is covered from head to toe. David goes against that dressed as a shepherd. Why? Well, David is a man after God's own heart. He knows what the Word of God says. He knows that once upon a time when God wanted to defeat not one soldier, but an entire army, in fact, the greatest army in, in the world's history at that time, the Egyptian army, what did he use? Not an army, not warriors, but an 80-year-old shepherd named Moses with a staff in his hand. He also knows that the law of Israel says the penalty for blasphemy is death by stoning. So he has just heard this giant blaspheme his God and he says, this guy is not good enough for an Israelite sword or an Israelite spear. What he deserves, what he's going to get is about a half dozen rocks upside his ugly forehead because that's what the law requires. 
Now, you don't know any of these things. All you know is you see this shepherd walking through your lines as he says, excuse me, as he brushes right past you. And you're a little shocked, first of all, because it's the first time in 40 days you've seen an Israelite man advance instead of retreating. Secondly, because he's not dressed in, in armor, he, he's not holding any weapons, he's just a shepherd, and, and he's, well, he's kind of handsome, he, he's almost pretty, which really doesn't comfort you in this situation. And, and someone says, hey, I hear he's a heck of a harpist, and that doesn't make you feel any better either. But he starts to walk, and then he starts to run. And and you're amazed because he's not trotting, he's not jogging, he is sprinting down the slope toward the center of that valley, toward that giant. And and as he's running, you see him put, uh, take one of those stones out of his pack and put it into his sling and start to spin it. And the giant sees it about the same time you do, and he's a little surprised too, but he starts, you know, sort of ambling towards, lumbering towards the center of that valley too, to get ready for the fight. And then you look back to David. And he's sprinting on a dead run. And by now, that sling is spinning so fast, it looks like a solid object. It looks like a disc in his hand. And then while you're watching him run, you see his wrist flick just as fast as the striking of a snake. And you don't even see the rock. You just hear a crack. I mean, it's the, it's the craziest sound you've ever heard. If you live to be 150 years old, you'll never forget the sound of that crack. And you, your eyes follow to try to find where that crack came from. And you see on the other side of the valley, the giant has stopped running. And he's dropped his sword and he's dropped his spear. And he's standing there with kind of a confused look on his face. And you notice that there's something red trickling down around both sides of his nose. And he opens his mouth as if to speak and and leans forward. And as you're waiting for him to say one more word, he just suddenly with a loud thud collapses face first into the dirt. And a moment earlier, it had been a deafening roar as all those Philistines were screaming. And suddenly there's dead silence. And you're thinking what everybody else is thinking. Did that just happen? Because nobody can make that shot. You can't can't throw it across a valley. You can't throw a rock that will just perfectly thread the needle so that it gets over that shield and under the rim of that guy's helmet and, and caves in that massive skull. And certainly not at a dead run. And certainly not when you're afraid you're about to get ripped limb from limb. Nobody can do that. And yet... In just a few moments, you see the kid on the other side of the valley and he's lifting that big boulder-sized head in one hand and you know it's real. And you hear the sound of Philistine soldiers dropping their weapons and turning and running and you shout a victory shout and you start chasing. And by the way, verse 54 tells us that David took the head of Goliath to Jerusalem which is an interesting statement because scholars will remind us that Jerusalem at that time was not even an Israelite city. They'd conquered most of Israel, but Jerusalem still belonged to the Jebusites. And so they debate, scholars do, about what it means in verse 54. And so the one theory is that when David conquered Jerusalem years later when he was king, and he built his palace, that one of the trophies he brought into the palace was the the skull of Goliath. And then then there's another theory, and this is the one I prefer, that says that David went straight from the battlefield to Jerusalem, and he took that head with him, and he put it on a stake in the middle of town as if to say, hey, Jebusites, look what our God is capable of, and you've been warned. So, 
What do we learn from this story? What does this story teach us? Well, think about what that common foot soldier, think about what you learned at that battle 3,000 years ago. The same lessons that applied then apply today. Three things. Number one, you know there is a God in Israel. You know that God is real. I want to read for you David's speech. I skipped over this. This is the best part of the story in my opinion. Because when David stood on one side of that valley and faced the giant, the giant saw him and was indignant. He was offended. I've been out here 40 days waiting for a good fight and you send me a kid with sticks. And so he rained down profanity on David's head and everyone heard him cursing the God of Israel. And this is David's response. I want to listen, you know, I am not a fan of smack talk. This is the best you've ever heard. Let me tell you. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hand. It's a pretty good speech. But if you're there on that day, you might think, okay, good job but it's all words, right? But months after the fight, and you notice that David has still not married Saul's daughter because he doesn't consider himself worthy. And he hasn't enriched himself. And he hasn't made himself a, a, a man of great power. And you realize, you know what? David wasn't in it for glory. He wasn't in it to promote himself. He wasn't in it for wealth or power, he really did care about God's glory. He just wanted people to know. Philistines, Israelites, Egyptians, anybody who ever reads this story, countries that hadn't even been discovered yet, he wants everyone to know that God is real. That God is not some statue somewhere in a temple. That God is not some abstract idea in the minds of human beings. That God is a real being who acts on behalf of human beings who follow in Him and trust in Him. And so that day you discover, you know what, he's right. There is a God in Israel. And don't you think that you, from that day forward, whenever you're in trouble, you're going to turn to that God instead of your own strength, instead of the gods of other nations? You've seen what he's capable of now. Don't you know you're going to realize that day, it's amazing what we can accomplish when we're not worried about gaining glory for ourselves? Because... We have two choices when we're in trouble. We can either go to God and say, okay, Lord, you do what I say, or we can go to God and say, okay, Lord, I'm in your hands. And that's what David did. See, our problem is we think we can order God around and tell him what, what to do. But God's not a dog on a leash. He's the God of the universe. We go to him and we say, I am at your service, Lord. There is no end to what he's going to accomplish in and through us. There's another story kind of parallel to this one uh, about uh, not one teenage boy, but three. And they didn't stand in front of a human warrior, but instead of a fiery furnace, 
And we know that story, right? The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those three young men from Israel who were kidnapped along with their friend Daniel and and taken to Babylon and raised up to be Babylonian officials. And and they are commanded to bow down before the idol that Nebuchadnezzar, the, the emperor of Babylon, has set up, and they refuse. And so he's so angry. They stand before him. He's so angry. He's almost as hot as that furnace. And he says, you've got one more chance. Bow down or die. And they say, oh, king, we can't do that. We know that our God is even stronger than you are. Our God is able to rescue us from you. But even if he does not, we're still not going to bow. See, when you have a heart that says, whatever happens to me, it's not important. What matters most is God's glory and people getting to know who he is. When you have that mindset, when you choose to go down that road, God starts doing amazing things in your life. God is real. Number two, you learn from this story that God's people fight differently. See, Saul was ruled by fear. All he knew when he saw an opponent with sword and spear and shield and armor was to gird up his own sword and, sword and spear and shield and armor. Muscle against muscle. And in this case, Saul knew the math didn't work. His muscle wasn't as big as the enemy's muscle. So he was afraid and fear ruled him. But David... David had the Spirit of God on him. And we talked last week about how when David was anointed king, the Spirit of God came into him and empowered him and never left him. And I guarantee you David heard the voice of fear. The Bible doesn't tell us this, but David was just as human as you and I are. And I guarantee you, I don't care who you are, if you stand across a valley from a 10-foot tall giant who's ready to tear you limb from limb, you're going to hear the voice of fear. And I'm sure that voice said to David, listen, you don't know for sure that God's called you to do this. Maybe you just dreamed it. What if you run down there and he gets his hands on you? Do you know how painful your last moments are going to be? I'm sure David was thinking all those thoughts and yet he chose not to listen to the voice of fear, but instead to listen to the voice of the Spirit. So my question to you, because I know there are some of you here today facing incredible odds in some, some portion of your life. My question is, are you listening to the voice of fear or the voice of God's Holy Spirit? Because if you listen to the Spirit, you're able to say, you know what? I don't want to die, but if I die, it's a promotion. And if I live, I get to serve God even longer. So frankly, I win either way. And I don't really want to be rejected by this loved one of mine, but I also know that if, if he or she does reject me, I've got the one who never leaves me or forsakes me. And so I'm freed up to love you. Instead of needing you, I can truly love you. Instead of expecting and commanding your adoration because it's key to my self-esteem, I can just love you and give myself away to you. And when I'm afraid of failure, I can say, God is able to use my failures in ways that are even more glorifying than my successes. So bring it on. If I lose, He wins. And if He wins, we win. And if I'm afraid of the world changing in ways I don't like, I know Jesus is still on the throne. No matter who's in the White House, no matter who's on the Supreme Court, no matter who's in the city council or who's marching in the streets, God is still going to win. And so I can love people who hate my guts. I can love people who live in ways that I just find abhorrent because once I was an enemy of God and he brought me in. God's people fight differently because they've got the Spirit of God speaking to them. 
And then third and finally, and this is the one I really want you to remember, I am free because of someone else's victory. So picture, picture coming home from that battle and you've got both arms full of loot from the Philistine army that they've left behind in their flight from the battlefield. And it's more than enough to pay for all the economic loss you've suffered from all those days at the battlefield. And when you get within eyesight of your tent, your kids come running out to meet you and you've got to drop all that loot to grab them up. And they, they fight each other to see who can get to the top of daddy's head first. And one of them says, did you beat him, dad? And you say, no, I didn't beat him. David beat him. And they say, well, who's David? And you say, he's our champion. He fought, he won, and we're free. One of my favorite scriptures in the whole Bible is Hebrews 12, 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. That term, the founder or author of our faith, is the Greek word archego, which literally means champion. Jesus is our champion. Jesus fought single combat for us against our worst enemy. And just like David, Jesus was forgotten, he was forsaken, he was ignored. When he tried to do something good, those who, who should have been his loved ones tried to talk him out of it and, and mocked him for it. Jesus, like David, didn't win in spite of weakness. He won because of weakness. He won through weakness. And so the message here for us isn't, hey, just be brave like David. The message is, Jesus was brave for you. He experienced the worst of what we fear. You fear somebody else being in charge? He was given under the control of His worst enemies. You fear rejection? He was utterly and completely rejected by us, even by God the Father, because He became sin on our behalf. You fear failure? He was treated like the worst failure ever. He was executed as a criminal. You fear death? He died in your place. Three days later, rose again and shattered the power of death. We can now say, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear because you are with me. 